Well, we come to our last gathering together as a church in the year 2020. And it's been a, a year for sure, um, maybe a year full of a lot of good things and some struggles as well. Uh, but one of the fun things that I've watched over the years is that people have come up with memes that uh, describe that if 2020 was an object, right? And so um, there's the first one. If 2020 was a slide, it would be a cheese grater, right? If uh, 2020 was a scented candle, it would be next. There you go. All right, it would be a burning uh, porta potties. If 2020 was a swing, it would be swings in front of a brick wall. If 2020 were a pinata, the pinata would be a hornet's nest. Uh, if 2020 was a hula hoop, it would be made out of barbed wire. If uh, 2020 was a drink, what would it be? Uh, colonoscopy prep. So if you're a young person, don't know what that means, just look for an old person and ask them, okay? And last but not least is the most disgusting one. If 2020 was a cereal that, so quickly take that off there. Go to the next one quickly. That's disgusting. That, uh, that will make you have a bad taste in your mouth for a long time here. So, all right. And because uh, I still, I almost gagged when I read, looked at that one earlier. And so, um, Anyway, 2020 has had its ups and downs and some challenges for sure. But for all that 2020 has been, if you are Christ, one thing I can promise you is that you have not navigated this year alone. The Lord has stood with you and he is still there. His promises still stand and his kingdom is still the best place to be building your life. And today, I want us to look at how we can be confident in that promise. How can, I be promi how can I be confident in that promise that the Lord promises he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he'll be with us in all things? How do I have confidence in that promise? Well, if uh, we have been doing a thing uh, this year, uh, and we'll continue into the first couple months of 2021, called Core 52, and there's a chapter that we've been reading. And if you read your chapter this week, um, the theme was the Son of Man. It's a theme that I, I've read that name in the Bible a lot. You see it all over the place. Jesus uses it frequently. Um, and it's a topic that is very new to me in a lot of ways. I've never really dug into it and thought, well, why did Jesus use that? Um, what's that there for? Um, and we're going to do that today. Because I think in understanding what Jesus means by that, um, I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. And I think it reinforces that sense of, well, how can I trust the Lord to be with me in all things? Well, I think that the title, the Son of Man, that Jesus used and the Bible uses, and the way that's applied and the mission that's behind it, I think there is an encouragement and there is fortification for our faith in it. And so um, we're going to start off with a couple Old Testament passages just to get some ideas of this little phrase, the Son of Man. All right. So let's start with Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a uh, it's kind of a crazy chapter, lots of things going on. It's kind of a vision that Daniel has. But in the midst of his vision, you find these two verses that uh, are relevant to our theme here. Daniel seven thirteen says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. So there's our phrase, okay? So listen to what else it says about this one who was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, talking about God, the Father, and was led into his presence. And in this presence, he was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. 
And so you read that verse and you pick up this idea that uh, to be a son of man must be a pretty cool thing, right? It's a, it's a pretty cool phrase. But, but really, if you, if you did your reading this week, you, you saw that this is like the only place in the Old Testament where to be a son of man is like a really cool positive thing. Normally, it's just a reminder that you and I as people, as human beings, are frail and broken and much less than who God is. In fact, there's another verse from Job 25 that kind of highlights this idea of the, the reality of what it means to really be a son of man. It says this in Job 25, Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? And so, am I a man or a maggot, uh, as the old Muppet song used to say? I think that's how it went, maybe. Uh, it could. Um, and so, again, that, that all of a sudden takes it from, wow, to be a man, to be the son of man, that's not a compliment, necessarily. It, it's much more of a reminder of our frailty. And so, everywhere else you see that phrase, the son of man in the Old Testament, it's always more like Job than it is like Daniel, it's much more like a reminder of to be a human being compared to the divinity and the power and all the characteristics of God is to be much, much less. We're not close, right? We're not just a, a few good days away from being God. We are far below him. And so those reminders are there. And so when you go back to Daniel chapter 7, I think what it's trying to do is to remind her that when David saw, or excuse me, when Daniel saw this vision of this one like a son of man being given all these things, there was this shock value to it. Someone that you would not expect to be ushered into the presence of God and be given an eternal kingdom and authority and power and all the nations and races and tongues of the earth will worship him. It's almost reminding me that there's a little bit of a surprise there because one like a son of man is getting all of this. And so the Old Testament continues to show that, that to be a son of man is to be a, a smaller being in the world. But then you get to the New Testament and you get to a place like Acts chapter 7. And Stephen, um, one of the early Christians who was, at least by, according to the Bible, was the first Christian to be martyred for his faith. Right before he is stoned by his enemies, um, he says these words in Acts chapter 7. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hands. So De Stephen, not Daniel, Stephen is grabbing a hold a little bit more of what Daniel is talking about than other places. And so why the shift? Why does he emphasize that and not the other ones as much? Well, it's because I think that when Jesus came, and as you read your Gospels, the person who used the phrase to describe Jesus as the Son of Man was Jesus. The phrase that Jesus used to describe himself more than any other name was the Son of Man, which is an interesting phrase considering that Jesus elsewhere talks about his divinity, talks about how he's God, how he's come from God, he speaks for God, he listens to God, he walks with God, he's all these great things, but he continues to remind and describe himself with the phrase, the Son of Man. He says it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to think about his identity. That's an important question. Who is Jesus? But he doesn't say, who am I? Note what he says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Continues to use that phrase. In Matthew 20, verse 28, 
um, he reminds us of why maybe Jesus chose that title. Because I think he's grabbing a hold of both of the meanings from the Old Testament. The meaning from Daniel where it's this one who's given all these things. But he's also identifying with our smallness. He's identifying with our humanity. He's identifying with us as human beings. And he does it by taking a step of humility from his greatness, which is rightly given and deserving of him, um, to the humility and the humanity that he embraced by becoming one of us. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was his purpose. He became like a Son of Man. He became like one of us, in other words. He took on all that we were and all that we are. He became like one of us so that he might serve us by dying to ransom us. So again, when you see this phrase, son of man, I think one of the things that I have appreciated about this this week is the reminder of of the humility of Jesus. And that's not a new truth to us, but I think it's a good one to emphasize and to be reminded of. Because Jesus holds all of these titles and these things as we're going to see in John chapter one. And yet the step that he took was huge to embrace what it means to be a human as he became fully man, fully human. John chapter one gives us that that, that dynamic. In John one, one through three, you get this divinity at work. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you get the, the God side of Jesus, but then you get to verse 14. The word became flesh. You find that step. That step from glory to non-glory, inglorious things where we live. He took on a body. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. And so you and I are given this picture. There was a reason that Jesus called himself the son of man and continued to do so throughout his earthly life. In fact, the only one who calls him the son of man is Jesus himself. Nobody else ever called him that. They called him a lot of other things, but they never called him that. But Jesus continues to refer himself to, him, to himself as this title. And of all the titles Jesus could have chosen for himself, he chose a word that reflects humility and similarity to us. He chose identification with us as the name he would be called or he would call himself. There's an old camp song we used to sing or maybe we still do. I don't know. We haven't had camp for two years. So who knows if we sing it or not. But if when we do go to camp, we sing the song. Um, remember the one that goes, he came from heaven to earth to show us the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. That song encompasses everything that we're talking about here when we talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of man. It's about one who had all glory, but who embraced all the dirt and the mess and the chaos and the sin and the the messed up world in which we and I live. He would describe it this way in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Do you see the humility in that? The humanity in that? that God became one of us, humbled himself to the nth degree 
so that he might save us who are lost. Paul would describe this in Philippians chapter two, verses six and following, when he says, who being in very nature God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to or used to his own advantage, as this passage says. Rather, he made himself nothing. There's the humility by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, the son of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so you, found, you find this story, this testimony of Jesus, and even in the name that he called himself in his ministry, the son of man, you find the intentional humility that he lived his life with, that he approached us with. He never pulled rank. He simply came with humility, with the greatest step of humility ever seen. Um, there's an old writer, R.G. Lee, who lived a long time ago, and he described the step that Jesus took from glory uh, to humanity in words like these. What a deep descent he took from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, uh, not debasement, debased, all right, debasement, um, I feel like I'm in a, uh, what's that it's cool runnings movie again? The debasement. Uh, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. Jesus took such an incredible step. And every time he addressed himself and talked about himself to others, he talked to them from the perspective of glory given up so that humanity might be embraced. And so it is because of that identity with us that he called himself the son of man. And so when you see that phrase in scripture, I think it's helpful to stop and think that Jesus is reminding anyone who's listening to him as he talked of the step that he has taken for us. That was his mission. Not only was it a name, but it was a mission statement in that word. The son of man, uh, glory given away so that humanity might be embraced and redeemed and the lost might be saved through his life. And so Jesus had to become fully human in every way. And the Bible emphasizes that. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, Jesus was kind of human and he kind of knows what it's like, but there's always that place of doubt in the back of our minds that, well, but he's not wrestled with this. Yeah, he, was, he knew some things, but did he really wrestle with this? And that this is usually what I'm struggling with at the time. But I love what Hebrews 2.17 says. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Just love that little phrase, to be made in every respect like us. And I hope that that helps you just to embrace Jesus even more, to appreciate him, to give thanks for him, because not only is he a God who dies for our sins, but he's a God who embraces our humanity in the course of doing that. I, uh, I heard this story, it's an old preacher's story, and in fact, after first service, I had some people who used to live in Hawaii when they were in the military, and they came and corrected my pronunciation of the town, and I appreciate that, or the island, um, and I'm gonna try to say it, because I practiced it a whole different way, and now I'm gonna try to say what they said, which was the proper pronunciation, which was, there's an island in, in Hawaii named Molokai, 
I think that's right. Forgive me if it's wrong, but you don't know it, probably. Unless you've been there, you can correct me afterwards. Molokai. And the story from the island of Molokai in Hawaii came from the late 1800s. And in that time, there was no cure for a highly contagious and deadly disease called leprosy. It attacked the extremities of the body, as you may know, the ears, the fingers, toes, nose. It affects your nerves and does so many things to a body as it eventually just dies. It was a horrible disease. Today it is curable in many ways, but it wasn't back then. And in order to keep from starting a pandemic, the government would, spend, would send lepers to a colony on this island. They were secluded and isolated from those who were not infected with it. In 1873, there was a young, brave Catholic priest named Father Damien who volunteered to spend his life serving the people secluded on Molokai. When he arrived, he was startled to see the people not only suffering physically, but spiritually, emotionally, and socially. There was extreme drunkenness, immorality, and abuse. There was an overall sense of hopelessness. He saw people who desperately needed to know the answer to the great question that we all ask when we're going through crazy things. Where is God? They needed God's presence in their life. In 1873, Father Damien went to live among the 700 lepers of Molokai. And he realized the dangers and the implications of living around a highly contagious disease as this. But he went and he stayed anyway. And so he went about the business of building hospitals and churches and clinics and the whole while, he was working to give them the answer to the question, where is God in all of this? Whenever a church service was held, he would stand in front of the lepers and warmly and lovingly address them as, my dear brethren. Then one morning in 1885, at the age of 45, he stood before them and with a clear, calm voice, instead of starting with, my dear brethren, he started with, my fellow lepers, I am now one of you. And that's what I think I want us to leave here today with. When you hear that phrase, the son of man, it's Jesus' way of saying, my fellow people, I am now one of you. He brought God to us and he became a man in doing so. And so it was out of love that a humble priest became one of them. Out of love, he gave them a gift that would change their life for eternity. He shared with them the answer to the question, the ever-present question of where is God? And, and the only way he could do that is becoming one of them. And Jesus does that for us as well. Jesus had to have the same struggles that we do, as Hebrews says, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 4 later would say, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so you get this picture of the humanness of Jesus. That doesn't mean he's not God, because he still is. In John 1.18, you find that no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father, Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And so you get this crazy mind-bending thing of trying to put together Jesus is God and Jesus is man. And as he does so, he presents this beautiful picture of Jesus. But as we finish here today, I just want to emphasize on the, on the part that Jesus is, is one of us and the importance of that and the value of that and the reasons behind that so that when you read the Son of Man in your Gospels as you're reading the story of Jesus, you will have an appreciation for this is what Jesus is, is leading me to know and to think and to see him as. So seven things, you can jot them down if you want. Um, 
but you may be tired, so you don't have to. But you can, you can if you want. How about that? I know it's been a busy couple of days. Number one, why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? He called himself the Son of Man because he loved, he loved identifying with us. And I would just give credit to this list, first of all, to Arlie Davis. This is not mine, but I appreciated his list that he made of these. And so this first one, that he loved identifying with us, is, is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, what a thing that he not only did it, um, because sometimes we do things because we have to, but there's difference when you do something because you want to. And you get the notion that Jesus loved identifying with us. Charles Spurgeon um, once wrote these words about this theme of Jesus being called the Son of Man. He said this, how fond, how fond our master was of the sweet title, the Son of Man. If he had chosen, he might also always have spoken of himself as the Son of God, the everlasting Father, the Wonderful, the Counselor, the Prince of Peace. He has a thousand magnificent titles, resplendent as the throne of heaven, but he does not care to use them. To express his humility and let us see the lowliness of him whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. He does not call himself the son of God, but he speaks of himself always as the son of man who came down from heaven. So let us learn a lesson of humility from our savior. Let us never court great titles or proud decrees. Jesus could have named himself and called himself so many things, but he chose to embrace and use the one that most reflected his identity with us because he loved that part of what he did. So what a great gift that is. Number two, he called himself the son of man because he loved us that much. Not only did he love identifying us, behind that there was a love for us. He loved us that much. John chapter 15, Jesus is having a heartfelt conversation with his disciples that we get to read after the fact through John's gospel. And he says this in verse nine, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Perhaps the most important thing Jesus did in taking that body, being his glory being confined into a human body, was that that body was used as a gift to show his love to his friends, to lay down his life on their behalf so that they might know and experience God's great salvation through him. And so he comes and he lays down his life. He called himself the son of man because he loved us that much. Number three, he called himself the son of man because he is the bridge between man and God. He is the bridge and there needs to be a bridge because of all that God is in his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness and all that we are and our sinfulness and our smallness and our, our brokenness, there was a divide and there needed to be a bridge and Jesus becoming one of us became that bridge. First Timothy chapter two, verse five says, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And so he became the bridge between God and us. Number four, he called himself the son of man because he would be approachable for man. I don't know if you've ever met someone famous. Um, 
I'm sure you, some of you have. Um, we could tell fun stories about that. About you see someone famous and, and you, a complete stranger, try to approach them and there may be some nervousness on your part or some awkwardness on our part. And certainly from the person who doesn't know us, there is a sense of why are you bothering me or who are you kind of thing. There's a distance there. But the beauty of Jesus becoming one of us is it makes God approachable. You see, whenever you have that experience of seeing someone or knowing someone uh, of great uh, importance or, or value or, or um, uh, celebrity, whatever it may be, um, if you know someone who knows them and they know you and they're the bridge between those two things, if they take you to meet the famous person, there's a sense of relaxation because you know that he knows them and they know that they know you and there's the sense of, hey, let me introduce you and that's a much more easy process. And so when Jesus comes as our bridge, he also makes God more approachable. Who are we? Fallen, messed up, broken humanity, nervously approaching a God who is everything that we are not and yet because of the Son of Man, because of one who became like us, who now takes us to the Father, there's a sense of this relationship can happen. Matthew 11, verse 28, gives the picture of this ease, of this invitation when he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And so there's a sense of peace between these parties that before, there was, as Paul describes, there was animosity, we were enemies but now there is rest, there is a calmness because Jesus is the one who kind of smooths out these awkward things between us. Number five, he called himself the son of man because he gives us the relationship to God and that builds on what we just said. Because of him being the one who intercedes for us, we then can go and we can live in relationship to God through Christ. And so Hebrews 10, 19 and following describes the beauty of that relationship when it says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Could you boldly go into heaven's place without Jesus? No, there's no way you could. But because of what, who Jesus was as the Son of Man and what he did for us, we can now boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. And so, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting in him. We are invited to have a relationship with God because of the Son of Man. Number six, he called himself, we, we, we called himself the Son of Man because he connects us to our inheritance. And not only is there a relationship to be enjoyed, enjoyed there are blessings, spiritual blessings that, that we inherit that, that are given to Christ and he is worthy of them. But because we are a part of him, we then enjoy them as well through his grace shown to us. Romans eight seventeen shows us this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. That word heirs is important and co-heirs um, because what God shares with his son in the Trinity as we are joined into Christ, we inherit those blessings of adoption to sonship and all those beautiful things that are given to us. And finally, number seven, he called himself the son of man because loving us and redeeming us was his great mission. Every time Jesus used that phrase, the son of man, it was not just a title. 
It was a purpose statement for his life. Everything he did was about becoming man so that he might accomplish his mission to save us and redeem us so that we might have that life. Luke chapter four, verse 43, Jesus said to his uh, people, but he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. He wanted to share and get this good news of the kingdom of God to others. And finally, in 1 John chapter four, verse 10, this is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And that all happens because he becomes the son of man. And so that little phrase that Jesus used over and over about himself, 90 some odd times, to describe himself as the son of man, uh, it's a title, but it's deeper than that. And I hope the next time that you read your Bible and you come across Jesus and he talks about himself as the son of man, I hope that you'll pause and just say, thank you for that step from glory into the mess that is our lives. Thank you for identifying with us so that I might know God, so that I might have access to God, that I might have confidence to approach God. Thank you for becoming like me so that you might be a, a, an empathetic high priest to me and my struggles and my sins. Because that's good news. I saw this weekend uh, a man by the name of Kyle, uh, excuse me, Will Keebler, uh, jokingly posted on Twitter a Christmas card that was given to him by his parents. It said this, I think. Uh, we love you. Next year will be different, mom and dad. Um, and uh, his joke was, I learned this morning that my parents' unconditional love expires on New Year's Eve. Um, and so uh, that was funny to me. I laughed. But I, I thought that's true of a lot of things. We go through things and relationships and we can find that human relationships sometimes do have expiration dates. We don't love as well as we should to each other. But I take assurance because Jesus is the son of man that no matter what is going on in your life, on in your life, his presence will go with you and you will never get a card that says, hey, on X date or when this X moment happens in your life, my love for you ceases to exist. You'll never get that card. Because God's love is faithful and is bigger and it is true. Hebrews 13.5 reminds us that for God's promise from both Old and New Testament to his people, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so if you are walking through a tough time and place, please know he is with you. He is walking with you as he has been, whether you realized it and embraced it or not. But he walks with you into your future as we look to a new year. And the good news of all of that. Because again, there is no expiration date on that love. It stands, it lasts. And so I would pray for us this morning uh, the beautiful prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter three, verse 17, that gives us a foundation to say, this is where my heart rests. It's not on my performances. It's not on how good I am or am not in the year to come. This is where my heart needs to rest. Paul writes this in Ephesians three sixteen and following. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. May your heart, may your soul know these truths so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in what? In love may have power together. That love that we build our lives on produces an energy, a power that together with all the Lord's people, we will grasp how wide and long and high and deep is love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
And it is that love that fuels us. It is that love that sustains us. It is that love that picks us up when we fall. It is that love that keeps us going. And it, a love that was shown to us by the Son of Man. And all that he came to do and the beauty of, of a life embraced, the glory sacrificed, a life and a body embraced, sacrificed on a cross and given up for us so that we might know the love of God and build our lives upon it. So that is my prayer for you and for me in this year ahead, that Christ would be allowed to dwell deeply in our hearts as our faith in him grows and that our lives may be rooted and established in his love, not on our works, not on so many other things, but in his love as we walk in relationship with him. Would you pray with me, please? Our God, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for your faithfulness. We are thankful for the blessings, especially the spiritual ones, the ones that, that are eternal. And thank you that you chose your son to take up a body of flesh, to live a life in so many ways like the ones we live, to face the struggles, to face the ups and downs, but to do so perfectly and to offer that perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so thank you for that grace and that faithfulness and that blessing. And Father, as we enter into uh, the last few days of this year and look to a new one ahead of us, may we continue to look to that grace. May it be the thing that sustains us and calms us, changes us. May it be the thing that just is at work in our life. Help us to have great faith in your faithfulness to us. And may we continue to live in the blessing of Jesus, the Son of Man who came to ransom us. And so Father, whatever we may face in the year ahead, may we do so with our empathetic and faithful high priest always near us, always being invited into our life, into our circumstances, into our struggles, into our, our hurts, into our joys. Father, may we walk with Christ in deeper ways. May he be given greater residence so that he might dwell in our life through faith in him. We love you, Father, and thank you for your love. And we pray these things in Christ's name.